Welcome to the Tao of Color Grading interview series, where we talk with influencers, thought leaders, and professionals about the field of color grading for moving images. Quick reminder, if you enjoy this podcast, help spread the word. Log into iTunes, leave feedback. It helps others to find their way here and determine if this is a series worth listening to. Also, email me the name of other colorists you think I should interview, and if you have it, their contact info. I can be reached at patrick at towofcolor.com. Now, for the next two episodes, we are talking with international colorist and trainer Warren Eagles. He's based out of Australia. Warren is extremely active in the color grading community, both online and offline. He's been training colorists for years, especially on Da Vinci systems. He recently co-founded the International Colorist Academy, iColorist.com, and was gracious enough to lend me an hour of his time. And really, we just talk shop. The only thing missing were a couple of loggers. Enjoy. Warren, thank you very much for being on our podcast. I, I, I got to say that when I started you know, my towel color grading podcast, uh, one of the first names that people threw out to me was, you've got to talk to Warren Eagles. And, uh, and I'm psyched that I'm able to do that right now. I've got Warren Eagles on the line, uh, colorist, trainer, um, and most people probably know you nowadays probably through iColorist.com, which is your International Colorist Academy. Yeah. Hi, hi Patrick. How are you doing? Ah, thank you. I'm doing well. Thanks. 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 Thanks for having me on board. I like what you're doing. It's looking really good. And uh, yeah, probably known through that recently but obviously through a number of other things both from the uk and from now in australia yeah i mean this is not you know icolorist.com is actually probably an outgrowth of 20 years of color grading and can you give me a quick rundown where where are you talking from right now and and a quick rundown of of kind of your cv where, where you started and, and that type of thing yeah i'm talking to you from uh, my color grading room in brisbane australia uh, I started grading about 23 years ago in London. Um, worked for a photographer when I left school, so I was an assistant photographer. Like when you're 17 and you're doing underwear catalogs, it's a pretty cool job. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's a brilliant uh, job. <laughs> my buddies, my buddies thought I had the best job in the world, and for a few years, I think I did. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like everyone else. I sort of wanted to be a director or a cameraman. So I got a job as a projectionist. And I worked in film cutting rooms in Soho, oh, wow. uh, which was another good job because we'd go to Shepparton and Pinewood and we'd take editing equipment around. And I'd meet a lot of people through the, the projection world of doing cutting copies. So I knew, I knew about film and I liked working with film from both commercial side and movies. You were cutting, you were cutting negative or you were... No, I we I only ever handle uh, print material on Steambacks. Okay. Never netted. I never did actually actually cutting of any neg. It was right. all print stuff, and it was pretty basic the editing that I did there. Right. Uh, handled a lot of stuff as a projectionist. A lot of big cutting copies of on movies for screenings for actors as they were shooting in in London. Right. And after a while, I thought, oh, this is not going so well. And a, a job came up and a. Post uh, production company in Soho again. I became a runner, then worked to uh, the, the sort of channels up as a gopher, running tapes, uh, serving meals, making coffees, and just went in then to a dubbing area, making dubs, yep. VHS at that time. Yep. 
went into edit suite as an assistant where we typed big rolling captions. From there, started editing. And that was sort of the transformation from Umatic through to Avid. Yep. I did a bit of online stuff. And then it's quite lucky, I suppose, for me, I'd assisted in telecine because I knew film. I did the film cleaning. Uh, and then a colorist left. And as you do, you moved around in Soho quite a lot. And the other colorist there said, well, you know, you've shown a bit of uh, keenness. Do you want to come in and I'll train you? Oh, cool. And this was at Visions in, in London. That was in Visions. And okay. that, that colorist was uh, Clark Muller, who now works at Company 3 in uh Right. In LA. Right. So right. Nice. that's where it started. Very good. And and that's kind of, I think, you know, for, for guys in, in that era who got started in that era, and I got started in the biz about 89, it's, you, your start is kind of similar to my start in that, you know, you kind of start at the ground floor through duplication into editorial, and then finally you work your way into whatever your, your career yeah, goal it, ends up being. It, it's very different now because... Then I probably was an assistant for six months handling film, but I don't think I even, I handled the telecine, I'd lace the film, but I didn't touch the desk as a, it was a digigrade, I think, back then at all for six months. Yep. You know, I'd sit and watch the colorist, but I wasn't actually doing anything. Uh, obviously today it's a lot easier, you can go and buy your software and play away straight away, but I think what was really good when I did start grading, uh, all we could really do was primary grading, but you got to really fly grade things well, which younger guys probably don't do as much now because we'd lace the film up and a lot of the time it would run if it was 16 mil for 40 minutes. We wouldn't be stopping the VTR. We didn't have frame accurate film control. So we would uh, take control, sorry. So we would have to fly grade that. So people don't know what that is. We would chase the color with the joystick. So if a filter came in and out or the exposure changed, we would chase that on the fly and pull it in very quickly. And and by chasing, you're literally kind of chasing because you're not, you don't know what's coming up. The edit comes up and boom, you've got to quickly react to that before yeah. the next edit comes up. Is that, is yeah. that accurate? Uh, yeah. Uh, one of the first jobs I was left alone to do when uh, I was on Michael Jackson's Bad Tour, about 88, I think, in London. They did yeah. some big stadium gigs. And they were shooting film for fun in those days. Right. <laughs> 30, 35 mil, 16 mil. And we had stacks of film and the colorist was there. And he said, right, time to jump on. This is it. And he sat behind me and I, it just was fly grading, reel after reel of this stuff. Right. And then, as you know, the more you do, the quicker you instinctively know where to pull to get what you need. Initially, you obviously use your waveforms a lot more, but you just, and that's just a good skill, which really we don't do anymore. We don't do that now because we work with cut lists a lot more. We don't tend to, to grade everything, especially in that sort of scenario. Yeah, where you're just hitting play and you're just, you're just moving the balls and, and quickly pulling it in and whatever yeah. you got, you got, right? Yeah. Now, but now as that happens, I mean, when you're doing that, when you're doing the fly grade, was, uh, was that getting recorded out? In other words, you'd hit an edit, you'd make your adjustment, and then does that adjustment like get attached to that edit point? And then so that when they when they finally do the record out, it's just a nice clean thing. Or or no, are you we, actually yeah. seeing the actual move? No, we were yeah, you're seeing the move. We are wow. hoping to pull right. it in quick over a clapper board. 
right. or a very quick change. Now, if we couldn't do it in time and you'd make the call, uh, we'd stop. We'd stop gotcha. the VTR and we'd go back. But that was more of a manual pickup. Gotcha. So you do pickups when you days, didn't quite catch it in time. Yeah, I, I, you realize that you didn't pull it in time. And if the editors did want to use an early part of the tape, there would be a color shift or an exposure change. Then we'd pick up. But we try and get through the reel. Now, I want to roll back for something you mentioned because, you know, I listened to um, a podcast you'd done with, uh, I'm not trying to say his last name, Glenn Castino. Yes, yeah. And, you know, he had mentioned the same thing. You know, he didn't, he'd been an assistant for, you know, six months before he was allowed to actually touch the controls and really start grading. Um, and, and I want to roll back for a second on that notion. And when you're training people today, what are, the, what are we losing today by not having that? Or is it just a different experience and you can still become a great colorist even though you didn't have that initial type of experience? I think the hardest thing today is what I see in training. I think that people are working on their own a lot more than they ever were. And the hardest thing is having confidence to go forward and a belief in what you're doing is correct. Right. Uh, a lot of people, are, they're doing good images and they're grading nice pictures, but they're just not sure because they're working on their own or maybe there's other people in their department. They don't fully know as well. They know a bit of colorism because it's such a subjective thing. A lot of the time, they just seem to be lacking that bit of confidence that you would get from working with a senior colorist that would sit down and look at some of your work and give you some tips and pointers and this is what you should do. So one of the things I really encourage in when we're doing things for the ICA and our colorist is get the, the students to bring their material in, right. load up their projects, and I will go through and look at them and say, great, or suggest things. And the whole class gets involved in what someone's done. It's funny because I try to do it because, you know, I think that's absolutely point on that feedback accelerates your learning curve. And the whole point of those training systems that, are, that were in place and are still in place in some of the bigger facilities today is you can take four years off of your learning curve by working with people who have done it, been there, and can tell you what not to do as much as what to do. Yeah. And the other hard thing, obviously, when you're an assistant, you have been around the clients in your room as well because you're sitting yeah. there listening to all the, the ter terms of, you know, how you talk about things, the technology, the sort of things that colorists talk about, the whole thing where you have to do your job and you also have to entertain your room to an extent. That's all part of that experience of being that assistant. And there's, there's obviously very few opportunities to do that as an assistant. It's easier now to buy your software and get up and running, but that knowledge or that at least a, a year before you did anything, and then doing junior jobs and small jobs, uh, it's 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 changing. It's all changing, but a different a different type of challenge, I suppose, for the new colorist. Well, it's it's. I mean, even even on the editorial side, uh, you know, I grew up. You know, I started out as an editor well before I transitioned to becoming a colorist, and I got to tell you, I mean, the opportunity not only to watch. No. Oh, a dog. All right. Hello. What's his name? Yes. Yeah. Roxy. Roxy. Um, not only having uh, the opportunity to sit next to a colorist, but maybe even the opportunity to watch several different personalities at work. You know, I worked at a big post house where I'd go from editor to editor to editor. 
And it was really interesting watching how different editors handled different situations. And, and you really got to see this big picture as to how to interact with clients. Some were better than others. And you got to see it up front and you got to learn from it and hopefully incorporate, you know, best practices yeah. you know, so that it works for you. Yeah, no, no, I agree. So you, you start out in Visions, you finally get, um, and, and you're a junior colorist. And, you know, looking at your CV, you were a freelancer in, in Europe for a while. And, and then you, it looks like you had the opportunity to start a telecine department. Yeah, I worked, uh, Visions and uh, Molinaire, where I freelance, were commercial, more music video houses in Soho. And I got the chance to work at Chrysalis TV, right. which was a little bit out of town in Camden. And they were more long form. Right. But they were looking uh, to move into a uh, bigger area, uh, bigger space and the opportunity came up to buy a lab they got bought by Todd AO the US company had gone into uh, London bought Chrysalis the post facility where I worked and so we then took over a laboratory that was established in London but relocated it with a new machine into Camden so I was then in charge of moving their existing machines helping coordinate obviously the telecine department with a lab which is something I hadn't done before. I always had experience with the labs at Technicolor, Metrocolor in London, but never worked as closely with those guys, so that was good. We built a new telecine floor with three machines, one of them, one of them being a Marconi telecine, which was pretty rare, so uh, that was a very interesting uh, animal to drive. So it, it, it sort of broadened my whole experience into something that I hadn't learned, hadn't had the chance to experience too much before. So I enjoyed that because whatever I've done, I've always moved. And as I say, you learn something every day and the day you didn't learn anything, you know, it wasn't a good day. Yeah. And, and what interests me about that is because you, you then had a staff, I guess, that you were overseeing of colorists, right? Yes. Yeah. We had a, a team of a couple of night guys because Obviously, the big bulk of our work was uh, 16 mil for drama, documentaries. And the lab that we took over, they had a big uh, like documentary, natural history background. Quite a number of clients that did that work. So we'd run a, a, a team of two guys working nights. Uh, I would cover all the, the jobs during the day with another guy who would sort of do evenings. So there was probably five colorists plus two guys who would do a lot of sound syncing. We always did sound syncing out of uh, out of telecine in London, so they would take the tapes, ingest, and sound sync that way. And did that also mean you kind of handle like the HR stuff for the telecine department? In other words, you kind of you had to hire people, you had to yeah, evaluate I, talent. I did. I had a little, very interesting little exercise when looking at uh, colorists because we we could we normally found people in inside. Uh, inside our facility, whether they came from editing or maybe they came from a graphics background. And uh, the, one of the lessons would be I'd show them twice how to lace the telecine and see whether technically they picked that up. And then also I would just make a primary grade on a, a picture on the machine and see whether they could pull just by using the primaries. And I showed them the balls roughly where things were, whether they could just grade a nice picture from where I left it. And that, those two little tests were really useful in me evaluating, you know, what guys had a, a reasonable eye for color. And at that time, it was still very 
mechanical. You had to lace lots of film if you're an assistant. That gave me an idea on the ability there as well. Right. And, and let's talk a little bit about that because I find it interesting and, and you're a good guy to talk with this about is, you know, the transition from the more mechanical telecine to, you know, digital color grading and, you know, how it was, how grading has changed. I mean, I imagine if you were to approach a project you worked on back then on, you know, a DI station today, uh, you would probably make a lot of different choices. And I was wondering if you've ever thought about uh, how that affects your workflow and how that affects your thinking. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. There's a there's a still I use that sits on my website, and I think it's me in this Chrysalis TV place before we'd move rooms. And I'm in my room, and apart from having like a huge quiff, I that's personally me. I change. I've got a little bit more hair then. I think I had like 12, 12 tellies in this room. Yeah, like there's a grading monitor, a luminant D black and white. I, every VTR I could go to had its own dedicated TV. Yeah. I had a, a little TV for the edit controller. I had a vision mixer, mixer in the room, a separate still store, a cage generator, obviously the grading desk, an audio mixer. The, the job then was more of a technical job. If you saw the film moving around, or we'd call it floating, means it's slightly bouncing up and down, there was either an issue. It was either an issue in the camera well, there's an issue in your telecine. You could have a, like a bright up a shading problem. So you could have a slight magenta green edge because your tube was, was slightly going off or was it getting softer? There's a lot of things you had to look out for before you even thought about doing anything creative for your grading. Right. Where that is the big change now, now because we work with a cut list, we can concentrate a lot more on the artistic side of the job, I think. But we have to be obviously a lot more file savvy than we obviously ever were then. It's become more of a file-based, computer-based way technically, but creatively, I'd say it would be more because we have more opportunities and certainly more tools than, than I ever had back then, at least 15 years ago. Yeah, I mean, you know, you had, obviously you could do your primary grades, your RGB balance, uh, were they mostly like RGB gain lift gamma controls that you were pretty much? Yes, you had uh, you had uh, PEC controls which would uh, control your telecine. Then you'd have neg gains from there which you could adjust. So you'd really set up all your all your telecine controls first, get that front end right. Then it would come into either your DaVinci or your Pogel, which was basically your two choices back then. Then you would do your primary grade in there, and then add probably one window. Right. And over, right. Over time, they started adding like power windows, which were literally like, you know, boards that they would slot in that, you know, gave yeah, you access to vignetting and things. Yeah. Da Vinci would say, sure, you need another window. There's a hundred grand and we'll give you this card <laughs> and we'll slot it in. And yeah. then we said, well, hey, we, 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 we're pulling these secondaries, but they're a little bit noisy. Can we soften them? So you'd maybe give them another 50 and they give you a defocus card. It's a big <laughs> card to slot that in. That's how, how, you know, we were dependent on these, these big, uh, big rack units uh, with these cards in. And that's how it was done. It was a hardware, hardware machine, but always real time. And right, always real time. HD, yep. always real time. But a yeah. lot of folks power to do it. Now, do you remember the first time you sat in a digital color grading station? 
I probably first time I saw something was probably Luster around 03, I would think. 02 or 03, I saw a Luster. And this was at a trade show. And I thought, well, this is, this is, I was excited by it, I must admit. So the reason I ask is I'm, th I'm wondering if when you first had that experience looking at the Luster, was it kind of the first experience that online guys had when looking at the Avid where you, where you look at it and you say, this changes everything? Or was it more just, oh, okay, that's just a natural evolution of where things are going? No, 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 no. I was definitely excited by it because at that time, that was probably the only, the first or DI nonlinear system that was around. So, you know, it was a, it was a game changer and they've been using it on Lord of the Rings. So down in this part of the world, we'd obviously heard it. It was Colorfront that they used there, which then became Luster when it was bought by Discrete. Right. And yeah, just the fact that you could grade in context, you didn't have, you know, live telecine machine there that could trip you up with problems. The, the window ability, we could draw shapes, you could do a track. You know, yeah. you just see colorists <laughs> coming in going, wow, you know, all, all these things. But at the same time, you thought, well, you know, this is going to change things because can we do things faster? How are we going to bill for this sort of thing? So <laughs> there was a few considerations there as well. Obviously, I went to see this with my management and you could see them thinking, yeah, if we work faster, can we bill the same? Can we bill as much? And then we're thinking of the, the engineer guys thinking about storage, how are we going to store this stuff? And so, so there was a number of people all thinking, well, this is going to come in. And for a while where I worked at it, I worked at Cutting Edge in Brisbane. We, we had, well, we didn't have one. We had our router set up with luster inputs and outputs because we were pretty sure that's what we'd buy. Because right. we all really liked it, and we were sort of doing early DIs on a DaVinci 2K, right. just at HD res, and we started it. So we were doing DI early on in Australia, yep. at a sort of a, a very uh, crude way, I suppose, just 422 HD, not using any color science or lookup tables, grading, uh, as if for a, a video finish, but then uh, applying our lookup tables at the film recorder. Right. And so getting reasonable results, but obviously not acceptable, but it was pioneering. And, and I suppose that we didn't really know other ways and we weren't equipped to calibrate. And very few people were back there. That was 02. Uh, we did, obviously didn't have a theater. We were grading in our room where we did our commercials and we did our dramas. So it was exciting because it certainly showed us the way forward and we could certainly think, well, you know, this is what we can plan for. And, uh, and, and so on your CV, you do list, um, I guess, doing the first Australian DI, and, and that's the process you went through on that. I yeah, guess. that was a film called Blurred, which was all 35 mil transferred, I think, and then to D5. Right. Because there was no SR, so we went to D5. Uh, HD, and then we did like a conventional take-to-take -take grade on the final cut. So there was probably a week of a grade, and we had some some, some good looks. And I must admit that the DVD looked really great. It didn't transform so well when it was shot out to film. Right. Uh, just for the few, the way it was done, and however they did their their calculations, but it was a good learning experience to do it. And I, I was enjoyed working on that show. 
a lot of people uh, bandy about the term DI pretty loosely to mean, I think, you know, just digital color grading. But DI really is a very specific process. And as someone who's gone through that, can you just explain to the audience what, you know, when someone says they're doing a DI as opposed to just like grading and resolve, what's the difference? Yeah, yeah well, I've, I will always say that DI color is to someone who's, who's grading feature films. You know, if they say, uh, I'm doing a DI on a commercial, normally what they mean, they're grading it digitally in a long, non-linear way. Uh, obviously, for a, a true DI, that is uh, obviously grading files. It's working with the calibration, so their projector is calibrated for their film out with their film lab and the stock that they're shooting out to, they're recording out to. And they're working in a fully calibrated environment, and it is a film. So that is my understanding of DI. It's, uh, it's digitally graded, but it's a film. Yeah, so I mean, the end result is you're taking those digital files and you're spitting them out to a photochemical process. Yeah, and obviously still that is our priority today. We calibrate our projector, or maybe if we're using a monitor, how, it is look, how it's going to look in a cinema being projected from a print. Whereas in real terms, probably now, what makes the money is probably Blu-ray sales, and uh, DCP, digital, digital cinema versions. But still, and it seems to be, still our priority is to get that cinema version looking right for film, and then we will use a transform LUT or something to make these other digital versions. Now, that will change as we get more digital cinemas. We will grade in uh, digital color space, whether it be P3 or X709, and then at the end we'll say, well, let's put this through a uh, transform LUT and put it into film color space because there's still 25 cinemas out there that want right. to see a film print, which probably makes more sense if we look on how much these films bill and in what area they are making their money. So this is slowly changing. Now, this kind of brings up a, a little ancillary um, subject. So, you know, you, you've done a lot of grading for film. In fact, did you did I read correctly Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels? Yes. yes. And you were, that was, yeah, I did that in London. That was only for DVD and TV release, though, because there was only, I think, four or five shots that we graded for it just digitally to go right. into the actual cut. Right. We graded those digitally, but for the bulk of it, was conventional grade because okay. that was 98 so it was going back a while so um and i ran it i ran into this recently you know I'm, I'm i'm kind of a more of a video guy right so i'm used to looking at crts lcds plasmas and uh you know i recently uh worked at a buddy's uh grading theater and it was a projection a black room box and, you know, when you're working for, for video, you've got the backlights. You've got a certain level of ambient light that you're working with. Yeah. And when you're working in a theater with a projector, you're, you're working in a lights-out kind of environment. Mm. And I'm wondering if my experience uh, holds up for you if I'm just getting old, which is I found that exhausting. Um, you know, after about seven hours, man, I was like, holy cow, my eyes are just, you know, yeah. I am exhausted yeah. at the end of this working in this black box environment. Yeah, there, I agree. It, it is harder because 
because in that darker environment you're concentrating, I, I suppose you're getting a lot more, I suppose in, it's hard to explain, maybe intense light coming back from both your GUI that you're looking at a lot, maybe you're... Um, obviously you're projecting, you're looking at, there's less things around that are influencing you. Right. And I used to find that traditionally telecine suites used to be a bit darker as well. Now I think they've become more lighter, and in some respects they're not much darker than your normal room, which is probably how it should be for TV stuff. Right. Yeah, a little more closer to how the end user is looking at it. Definitely, but I think generally people say, well, how long can you grade for? You know, I've done 16 hours. We've all done long sessions to get jobs done, but I find four hours, half an hour, hour for lunch, four hours is about the the best you would do. And yeah. I find if I'm getting tired, then the client is certainly getting tired <laughs> because they're not used to being in there. They're used to being on the set, on the location. But to actually get them to sit down, it's a long time. That's funny because I was talking to my clients about that after day two. I'm like, listen, guys, I'm going to take a couple more breaks throughout the day just to like focus far and let my eyes relax looking out the window. And, you know, they said, yeah, man, I mean, we've been we walk out of there wiped out. You know, yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. You you really need to every couple of hours you want to have a break or walk around, make yourself a cup of coffee, come back. You know, just adjust yourself, get a bit of a real world, go out and look at a blue sky or thing and just come back in. And and then sometimes you see things differently. But if you don't take that break and you just plow into it, often you go back and you look at what you did and you think, was I really, really sure about what I was doing yesterday? And this is a good spot to wrap it up for this episode. Next episode, the shop talk continues. And I think we'll be breaking some news on Warren's upcoming training for all of us transitioning to Resolve on a Mac. Be sure to tune in next week. This podcast has been brought to you by TauofColor.com. I encourage you to leave comments about this interview on its blog posting. If you enjoyed this, you'll definitely enjoy our weekly color grading newsletter, delivered to your inbox every Sunday to enjoy with your morning coffee. Or, as one reader wrote to me this week, with his Sunday evening glass of wine after working on his ranch down under. And of course, the Tao has its own very unique project-based color grading training program that I encourage you to check out. My name is Patrick Inhofer. Thanks for your time.